Greetings, all. Happy Wednesday. Hopefully you got past the 4th of July holiday safely, and so did your furry friends. Um, Hopefully nobody was terrified into um, ice. And uh, anyway, um, I'm glad it's done. Done for another year. And uh, golly, we could do without the fireworks. This is Jill, K9360 here on KZUM. And uh, we're just glad to have, yes, survived the doggy's least favorite holiday, right? Doggy's the world around. And uh, uh, I suppose there's an editorial to make, but um, it's over. We're done. And uh, we'll get on to what we really want to talk about today. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging out. Uh, thanks for giving a listen to K9360, where we try to do things to be helpful, right? Bring information, uh, share ideas and resources, uh, help you stay up to date on excuse me, everything that you need to know, everything that you want to know to make life with Fido, Fluffy, Rover, Bailey, whomever uh, is there with you in your house um, to make that life happy and harmonious and enjoyable in all the ways that we know it can be. So, Last week, we talked a little bit about the challenges of reading and understanding canine body language. Um, There's lots of opportunity for misunderstandings when it comes to what our dog is trying to tell us. Um, Many years ago, a, a treasured cherished academic colleague commented I think casually we were sitting around in the office and he said you know human beings do not like an information gap and when we're faced with an information gap and we don't have a way to fill it appropriately what we often do is we just make stuff up. Stuff wasn't the word he used, but I love you too much uh, to use the one that he used, and I'm not allowed to. (laughs) The FCC says no, no, no. Um, But he's right. When we look at our dogs and we're not students of animal behavior, we're not academic ethologists, we haven't studied such things um, formally or informally, and we're trying to figure out what our dog is trying to tell us, we're faced with an information gap. And often we make stuff up, right? Because as we said last week, one of the biggest mistakes we can make as humans is imagining that our dogs are seeing the world around them as we see it. That they see it as we see it in terms of what is safe or dangerous, what is okay to approach, what's okay to have approach them. And we humans have the power of language um, and the 
capacity to be exposed to a broader range of people, animals, machines, environmental stimuli, both inside and outside of buildings or structures or or whatever. Um, And we also have the power of language, which allows us to place these things in their appropriate social context. Dogs lack all that. Dogs are not people. I know. They're not human. Not your fur baby. And they see the world and they communicate with each other in ways that are quite different than what we think. Misunderstandings are always possible. So in the name of, in the spirit of helping us to clear up some of those misunderstandings so that we can better understand them and arguably so that they can better understand us. Um, Let's return to our investigation of what it means to read the room and uh, take another look, a little bit closer look at the text that I mentioned, the book I mentioned last week, which is Brenda Aloff's um, amazing and amazingly useful examination of canine body language. And that, in fact, is the title of the book. Uh, You can pick it up anywhere books are sold. Canine Body Language, A Photographic Guide. Her subtitle is Interpreting the Native Language of the Domestic Dog. Um, Let's see, when did she publish this? Copyright. I'm looking, I'm looking. Um, Goodness, you wouldn't think it would be that hard to find. Usually it's right here. Oh, 2005. There it is. Uh, 2005. And it's really exhaustive. Um, Let me just see if I can give you a little bit of an overview and then a little bit of of insight from Brenda herself. And we'll kind of walk through this text, uh, get us thinking about canine body language, right? Um, Because when we think about dogs and how they signal to us, there are also behaviors that are not really intended to be communication. They're just there, sort of the act of getting a, a job done. Well, so one example to think about that, uh, about what that means is when a dog comes out of the pond or the lake or the backyard swimming pool and he shakes, his, he shakes, right? He's, in, he's remarkable because they can start from their nose and go all the way to their tail. But shaking behavior is just that. It's something the dog does to um, get the get dry off after a swim, right? Shaking is also in the dog's repertoire for other reasons. It could break the neck of prey. If you've ever seen a terrier shake a rat, it can get meat loose from the bone. It can be uh, your dog shaking his toy, right? Shaking is not necessarily a deliberate communication. 
though it might incidentally signal to a nearby dog that, hey, I've got a, I've got a rat in my mouth. Come on over and see if you can get one. Or it would signal to a dog who was nearby that there's water present, right? Similarly, sometimes signals are exhibited as an expression of an interstate, like sniffing the ground as a displacement behavior because the dog is nervous and wishes to sort of restore order by doing something familiar. That sniffing, which we see a lot in our competition dogs, they will um, sniff the ground to avoid uh, following a command if they feel uncomfortable in the, in the spot. That sniffing is not necessarily intended as a deliberate communication, but others can read the signal. Others, that would be us as handlers, and know that the dog is uncomfortable, right? But in the real world of doggy interactions, the division of body signals into deliberate communication and non-deliberate signals that reflect an interstate or a job to be done is not so tidy. Sniffing can also be a very deliberate communication to another dog. There's something interesting here. I've seen that with my own dogs. You have too. If one of my dogs drops their nose and starts sniffing in a certain kind of way, all the other dogs run over to see what's going on. What did I miss? Did the bunny come through here, right? Um, to make things even more complicated, some signals begin as expression, but dogs can learn to use them as deliberate communication. One of those uh, examples that Brenda Aloff gives us is something she calls a prey sequence, which is the series of behaviors a dog engages in during the hunt, such as stalking and chasing, intended by the dog as communication, maybe, maybe not, but it's an expression of the intense emotions of the hunt and of the physical requirements of competent killing. Other dogs in the area recognize these behaviors and will often rush to get involved in the hunt too. And that's where we sometimes can see misunderstandings arise, right? Dogs will sort of pile on. Aloff talks about a border collie who quickly learned that if she eyed a duck or even another dog, she can make it move. I think that's the motto of every herding dog, make it move so I can chase it. Very satisfying to them. Aloff writes, a dog will quickly learn that she can do a certain physical posture and it gains her positive results. One of my students has a dog that repeatedly lifts up her butt on sits. After a veterinary exam to make sure the dog was comfortable and had good hips, we began to work on the problem. Why was this dog lifting her hips? It began as just an expression of her intention. I'm uneasy sitting here. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm going to get up and, and come over to you. And quickly became, when coming to the owner, was discouraged more of a I can get my owner to return to me when I am uneasy if I just keep lifting up my rear end, right? A very deliberate communication, easily misunderstood. So what I like about Elof's book is that for the sake of having an organizing principle, she uh, has separated the deliberate from the non-deliberate body language or signals in this text but always remembering, and she wants us to remember, that the dog is exhibiting both at all times 
and that even the same signal may contain elements of both. She, she writes, I like this paragraph. She says, adding even more complexity, any particular behavior or cluster of behaviors might have multiple intents and will vary according to contents, context. For example, discipline directed toward a puppy has a different flavor than discipline directed toward a peer. Because of evolutionary parsimony, similar looking behaviors might serve different but dis- distantly related purposes. Similar behaviors developed to correct the puppy, discipline the peer, and subdue the prey, for example. Or you'll see a head duck in both resource guarding and stalking. The intention is related in both situations, right? Move away. In one case, so the valuable resource is controlled by the dog, and the other so that the chase can be initiated. When reading your dog's body language, always be cognizant of the nuances of context that determine the precise meaning of the communication. It's not so different than with us, right? Context is everything. In language use, that's linguistics 101. Meaning is use, as uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein famously said. Context is everything. And we also use one signal to sometimes mean many different things. I can say to you, no, 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 no. Four words, I'm sorry, one word, four meanings, and you probably got them all. Even more so if you were able to see my face, right? Because the expressions match the the use of the term. So dog communications is complex. Canine body language is complex, but it is not human because they're not human. And that's the great, fun, cool thing that awaits your discovery in this fun little book. So I wanted earlier, I said something about the difference between safe and dangerous. And I want to go back to that safe and dangerous thing for just a minute because a very basic emotional need of anyone, whether it's a dog or a person, is to determine that she is in a safe situation. And this determination, this decision, affects every behavior that follows in that context, right? So dangerous doesn't have to mean life-threatening, like someone pointing a gun at you. It can mean a situation that's socially awkward, where we don't behave confidently because we don't feel completely safe or emotionally comfortable. Um, We've all had that experience. And when a dog first enters a context that maybe she's never been in before, the first thing she'll try to determine is if the environment is safe or comfortable. She's going to read the room. If If she's a dog you're working with, cues, If the dog is so anxious about their safety that they cannot function normally, you might see a response that humans label as aggressive. That is, the dog might lunge and bark at another person or a dog who's approaching. Safety in that sense is nearly as dramatic as this. For most dogs in most unsafe situations, a more subtle discomfort is what you are likely to see. So it's useful to learn how to recognize this. Right, my I was working my dog in a park, um, Lincoln Park, 
the other day and a woman got interested in what I was doing and she came over to ask to, to speak to me in a way that I'm sure she thought was deferential, polite, curious. What my dog saw and what I saw that my dog saw was a woman who was stalking her. The woman's body language screamed dangerous and my dog responded in kind. And normally she's not that, she didn't get defensive. And I had to explain to the woman who containing hard eye contact and squealing that she was making my dog, she felt that was good, that she was doing a good job of aligning which effective and more wrong. Help illustrate that a little bit. Dogs has a great deal of face and their stuff, which we have talked about before, right? But the basic idea is that dogs are constantly concerned with and can about uh, resources, personal space, possession of objects. It makes nines, but rem- and wolves protect themselves, their toy from outside. They control insiders each other and decide what they will not. Uh, your dog may feel an obligation too, but remember two things are key. 25,000 years of domestication and two, your physical presence, right? Your dog cannot make, as a wolf can, independent decisions to menace or bite over the guarding of space or the guarding of objects. That's um, big trouble. Big trouble. Okay. I got to keep an eye on the time so I can make sure we can get through what I want to share with you um, out of this book. So uh, another nice example that um, is fun to watch, I think, and Elof makes an offhanded reference to it in her introduction is hunting. And hunting in wild canines is both dangerous and necessary, right? <laughs> and so swift, accurate communication between pack members is crucial. And that is achieved through body language. They're not talking to each other. So a lot of what we see communicated there is about predation in a general sense. Uh, things that like herding, which is a, an inhibited hunting behavior, moving that's moving and controlling prey, retrieving, carrying prey, and playing, which is hunting practice. And it's why we're so adamant here about not encouraging your young puppies to predate on you, to engage in behaviors, stalking, pouncing, grabbing, shaking, growling, chasing, right? That are correspondent with play that teaches predation. Bad idea. Okay. Um, So learning to recognize the signs of a dog who's going into predator mode then can be super helpful because on one hand, a highly predacious dog can be difficult to work with when you need him to focus on something else because there's that hindbrain again. Recognizing and interrupting an unwanted predatory sequence early before your dog or puppy gets too fired up to respond to you is obviously beneficial, right? Obviously on the other hand, engaging in predatory games with your dog is one of the 
worst ways to set that up. Right? Okay. So, a couple more things from, from Brenda. I, I love the way she writes about this stuff. She says, our ancestors, that would be human ancestors, did not necessarily want to be dog trainers. Instead, they watched nature. They observed that dogs did things naturally that would benefit humans, such as barking when they sensed an intruder. Humans capitalized on this and became dog breeders. Selecting for specific traits to do a specialized job makes great sense if you don't want to be troubled with lengthy training. If I wanted a dog to be a good alerting dog, I would choose a noisy animal that's reactive. If I want to leave my family for a few days and ensure their safety while I'm gone, I would want a dog that doesn't just alert. I want a dog who's very suspicious of anything new and bites. A guard dog, a subcategory of this type, and again, I'm quoting from Brenda Aleph here, would be the flock guarding dogs that we imprint on the species they are to guard at a very young age. This dog is sequestered away, kept away from other dogs and people, and now the sheep are very safe because this dog identifies the sheep as his pack and he has a very suspicious nature, right? She then goes on to talk about herding dogs, um, retrieving and gun dogs, uh, terriers who are independent, sled dogs who are also independent, um, and her overview is a pretty brief and fairly limited history of breed selection, but the intent is not to be complete, but to get us thinking about why breeds bear specific traits um, it, because it impacts their communication. All the signals discussed in the book can be used all, by all dogs. Certain dogs will rely on some signals more than others, and the dog's breed can be an important determination of this. Right. Um, okay, so one more thing. She says, if you only take one thing away from the book, let it be that despite how it may initially look to us, dog behavior is not random. And while some behaviors seem superfluous to people, the behavior is serving a function for the dog. It's either a reflection of the dog's internal state or a deliberate attempt to communicate with you or someone else. Your dog is talking to you all the time, all the time, she writes. Recognition of your dog's signals as well as an ability to recognize stress-related topography will move you significantly forward in understanding dog language, or in other words, filling that gap, that information gap. So, keywords in the index. Remember last week we talked about the importance of knowing vocabulary? Body lowered, body orientation, braced legs, dilated pupils, ears, eyes, head lowered, lips, mouth closed, mouth open, paw lift, rounded top line, silhouette, stillness, and tail. Okay? Because she's going to use all those words to help you locate the specific part of the dog that you are looking for or that you are looking at. Um, for humans to effectively communicate, we have devised an immense vocabulary, millions of words. Your dog is limited by his body parts and because of this, he must reuse words 
and that's in quotes, and depend on context and combination to form the sentence. Keep this in mind as you observe because mouth open must be combined with other words in many variations to get the most out of understanding these communication efforts. I'm telling you guys, it's really good stuff. Um, it's a great tool and um, it, it, it should be mandatory reading for everybody. Training becomes so much easier when your communication is flowing back and forth and being able to read your dog, like being able to read the room in a social situation uh, allows for that back and forth in ways that are aware and responsive, right? We've all had the experience of talking to someone who isn't really listening to us. They're just waiting for us to be done so they can talk. Yeah, um, your dog is talking to you all the time. The more aware we can become of what they're saying, uh, the more fun, I think, and seamless our communication with them becomes. Yeah? All right. Go get Brenda Aloff. little beach reading if you have beach. Capital Beach? I don't know. Find the water. Find the lake. Find the chair in the backyard. And... Uh, learn a little bit about canine body language. And that's it for us on Canine 360 um, today. We'll be back here next week with something more, something new. And uh, in the meantime, here we are in July. It's high summer. Yeehaw. Enjoy. Stay cool. Keep your dog cool. Watch out for hot asphalt. Watch out for signs of heat exhaustion. Make sure that your dog has access to water all the time and shade all the time if they're outside. Um, and don't take them for a ride in the car. It's too hot. Leave them at home in the air conditioning. I think that's the thing that dogs had in mind all along, right? When they decided to become domesticated, they were prescient. They envisioned us creating air conditioning so they could enjoy it all right take care stick around listen to more fun stuff on kzum and maybe we'll see you out at stransky one of these thursday evenings have a good one guys see you next week